Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I have had a lot of guests on this show. It's one of the things I do is a place where birders talk birding. I'm a birder. I find birders. We talk birding. Uh, so I've found guests in lots of ways, but this may be one of the more unique ways I found a guest. I was on a Christmas Zoom call. Take that back. I was on a Thanksgiving Zoom call. Christmas Zoom call coming up. I was on a Thanksgiving Zoom call with my Pullen family. The Pullen family right now, at least my relatively immediate Pullen family, is scattered to the wind right now. Both my children are living in Latin America. My son is traveling around to lots of places. My daughter lives in Costa Rica. Both Brett, my son, and Jean, my daughter, have been guests on previous episodes. Check those out. My brother, Bill, and his wife, Carol, live in Florida. They're one of their daughters, and her husband also live in Florida, and their remaining daughter still lives in Maine, near where I grew up. Morgan, my niece, and her husband, Kendall, and their cute-as-a-button baby daughter, Martha, live in Unity, Maine. Kendall is a state wildlife biologist. They live in Unity, Maine. Unity, Maine is a little tiny town. I mean, it is middle-of-nowhere Maine. Uh, it's about maybe 20 miles from Oakland, Maine, which is next to middle of nowhere, Maine, where I grew up, and is a little town, but it has a college, Unity College there. And Kendall, what, what's I guess he's my nephew, your niece's husband, does that make him a nephew? Anyway, Kendall uh, is a state of Maine biologist, and he has done a lot of research on black bears. Uh, and he apparently was the mentor of my guest today, uh, Jonah Gula, when Jonah was a student at Unity College. Uh, so I was talking with Kendall and Morgan at Christmas, at Thanksgiving, God, I've got Christmas on the mind at Thanksgiving, and uh, they mentioned that they knew of a really good birder who could be a guest on my show that I should get a hold of. And so I looked up Jonah Gula, and he is an interesting young fellow. He's a graduate student at Texas State University studying for his master's degree, and his topic of study is African storks, specifically the saddle-billed stork in Africa. Little is known about the saddle-billed stork from a research standpoint, and we get into some pretty good stories about saddle-billed storks. How do you catch a saddle-billed stork? Turns out it's not easy. You'll hear a little bit about that. You'll hear about some of his other jobs as a typical uh, out-of-college birder doing field work, uh, seasonal field works. He's had some interesting field work uh, with both mammals and with birds, uh, and has become an avid birder over the last few years. So I think you'll enjoy hearing the Bird Banner Podcast episode with Jonah Gula. Jonah, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ed. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I heard about you from my niece, Morgan Pullen, who, uh, Morgan, not Morgan Pullen, Morgan Marden now, used to be Morgan Pullen, who lives in Maine. And I understand you did some work with her husband, Kendall. Tell me how you got to know them. Um, well, I knew Kendall before he met Morgan, actually. I started working on a the Unity College Bear Study in Maine. I went to Unity College for my undergraduate, and we started a student-led Bear project and and Kendall was the regional biologist for the state in the area and I had a a strong leadership role in the project and so there was a lot of collaboration with the state and so that's how I met Kendall and and got to know him and became good friends with him and then when he met Morgan naturally I became friends with her 
Sure. Uh, Black Bears, that is, you know, to me, he's, uh, Kendall has, you know, told a little stories about pulling teeth from Black Bears and collecting samples and things. That's got to be scary <laughs> as hell. No, I, people always, always think that, but it really isn't. Um, you know, everything that we do is, is very safe, um, following protocols. You know, Black Bears are probably one of the best studied species of wildlife out there so there's a lot of um, experience that people have had to kind of lay the groundwork for safe protocols and yeah it's not as scary as you would think um, when you're doing it safely is it mostly done in the winter when they're hibernating or is it mostly done uh, when they're out and around that's one aspect of it um, most of the work that I was doing was during the summer trapping them and then that's when we were putting collars on them and then we would use the collars to follow them into their winter dens. And so most of the effort, however, was trapping during the summer. Oh, okay. Very cool. Uh, so you grew up in Maine? No, I did didn't. I did not. I grew up in San Diego, California. Wow. And went to you <laughs> in Maine. That's obscure. Yeah. Uh, it's about as far away as you can get in the United States, in the continental United States. Yeah, I just wanted uh, something different, a change. I wanted seasons. I definitely wanted to get out of California. And um, Unity is a, or was, a small, you know, experiential focused school. And, and that's what I wanted for wildlife. Um, I got my degree in wildlife biology. And yeah, so I moved across the country um, when I was 17 and but Maine is like a second home to me now. Um, I made a lot of good friends and I, you know, I have my Maine family there now, basically. Yeah, very cool. I have a lot less of my Maine family now than I used to. I, uh, I grew up in Maine and moved to Washington after I got out of the military. And so go back, except for this past summer, every summer to visit and sometimes in the winter. Uh, but my brother moved to Florida for the winters now. And uh, so it's, as did one of his daughters. So it's just Morgan and Kendall from my, that generation of my family in Maine now. So, but I can't wait to go back this summer. Yeah, I, I actually was just there um, about a month ago. I spent a few weeks there and yeah, I, I really missed it. Um, it had been years since I've been back and I got to visit Morgan and Kendall, but mostly I just did a lot of birding while I was there. <laughs> Very nice. So you were there in what uh, fall migration or no, just after, I mean, there was, there was still, um, some migrants, but mostly ducks were what we're moving through at the time. Mm, okay. Do you have a good birding friend community in Maine? Um, you know, I don't, I mostly go birding with my one friend there because when I was in Maine, when I lived there, I wasn't actually into birding. I didn't, oh. unfortunately, start birding until about the last five months that I lived in Maine. So going back is like, you know, a, a whole new world because there's so much. An adventure you have yeah, everywhere. Sure. So much to discover because I wasn't birding when I lived there. Right. There's some great places. I love going back in the summer. I've just in recent years started to develop a group of birding friends. I don't know if you know Don Mayers. Uh, Don is a is my my dad's generation. He's got to be in his late 80s by now, but it's just oh, 
he was he was a state entomologist uh, and so knows everything about everything so he knows bugs and birds and animals and is just really vibrant even in his older age and insists on driving when we go out we go all over the place and and louis bevier uh who's from colby college is, oh yeah uh, just i've heard a, that name yeah fabulous birder oh my goodness so it there's a great birding community if you get to know people back there yeah i of course i regret not being into birds when I was there, but I was just very um, mammal centric as, as many people that are uh, wildlife focused for school, you know, that's kind of how we start off. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's how sure. a lot of people start off. And yes, you know, especially working on the bear study, bears consumed my life. And then, um, you know, it's- They didn't consume you, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> But I didn't, I don't really know how I started birding it. It wasn't like, you know, a spark. It was, it was sort of like a gradual influence of a couple people around me. One, a friend and the other, um, one of my professors. And it just kind of gradually came on. And when being with them and, you know, them pointing out birds and I was just sort of like, this is really fun. Why have I not been doing this my whole life? <laughs> yeah, really. Good for you. So uh, you've been birding a lot since I don't have any idea how old you are. I'm, I'm yeah. But anyway, you, how long since you got out of Unity? How long has it been? I graduated in 2015, but I didn't okay, so start five. birding there until um, the winter of 2016 when I was living there. So oh, okay. Yeah, coming on five years of, of birding. Cool. Uh, and you've done a lot of field work. Uh, uh, you're at the uh, Texas State University now, a student there, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting my master's degree there. Okay. And what, what is your field of study there? I'm studying wildlife ecology. My thesis project for my master's is focused on African storks. Oh. COVID has has kind of um, messed things up a little bit because I had a, a field component to my research. Um, right. But I kind of had to pivot. And so now I'm just doing um, computer modeling for six of the stork species over there. Mm, okay. So there, there are a lot of storks in Africa. Uh, I took a trip to Kenya. I look at when I saw that you'd done some research on African storks, I look at, I saw five storks in, in Kenya on a trip there. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Africa and Asia, um, parts of Africa and Asia, there can be up to eight species of storks in any one place, depending on the time of year because of the migrants, um, which mm-hmm. is more than anywhere else in the world. So it's, it's pretty special for, for storks and, and water birds in general. Mm-hmm. People think of storks as related to herons and egrets, but they're more closely related to vultures, aren't they? Um, yeah, there's some debate about that. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, that, they're sort of in their own um, their own kind of group, and I don't really get involved in in that kind of debate because I, I don't think it's super productive. But um, I guess uh-huh. it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Okay. So what sort of things are you interested in studying for African storks? Well, my interest started off with the saddle-billed stork, um, Mm -hmm. which to me, I mean, of course I'm biased, but 
it has to be one of the most beautiful birds in Africa. I'm sure that's one that you probably saw in Kenya, huh? I did not. Really? That is one of the ones I missed. Yeah. Wow. I saw open bill, black stork, woolly neck stork, marabou stork, and yellow bill stork. But I had, I didn't see saddle bill stork. I'm not wow. sure why. Hmm. Well, I was there in the fall. Are they resident there or are they uh, migrants? Yeah, they're resident. Um, I guess okay. it depends on where you went because in Kenya, they yeah. they could be kind Can't of be sparse. Everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um, so not reason to go back. Yeah, exactly. Oh, always reasons to go back. Um, yeah, I, I was actually living and working in Zambia when I first started noticing saddle build storks. Um, I was working on a carnivore project and, you know, they're very charismatic and, and beautiful. And so I just, you know, started seeing them as the wet season was ending. And I was thinking to myself, where were they all of the wet season? So I just started trying to read up on them to, you know, learn about them a little. And I Mm -hmm. quickly found out that there's very, very little information about them and sort of what information that's out there about them is kind of made up or just guessed at. Um, mm-hmm. including population estimates. And that just kind of, one, frustrated me as a biologist that people are sort of just making up information, but that we don't have any idea about this this species. And so that kind of set me down the path that I've been since then for the past um, three and a half years about. And mm-hmm. it's just kind of snowballed into, you know, a curiosity, came up with an idea for a project over there. And um, yeah, I last summer, so I ended up going, like I said, my um, graduate research had a field component. So my master's project was originally looking at the spatial use of saddle-billed storks. So I was going to be capturing them, putting tracking devices on them, because we don't, mm-hmm. we don't know anything uh, if they migrate, um, how far they move, just all the kinds of basic information we don't have. Okay. And I had my first field season last summer. Because no one's ever done this before, it was a huge learning curve. <laughs> um, it was a real struggle. We only caught one stork um, in a three or four week period. And would you, would you capture them with, with cannons, nets, or how would you capture a stork? Well, that's going to be the next move. Um, so I had, there was a couple ideas because we just were having a base off of what people had used on other birds. So the way that mm-hmm. people have caught flamingos is sort of like this um, noose line of, uh, of snares made mm-hmm. out of fishing line. Mm-hmm. So it's just a line with a bunch of little loops suspended in the water so as they're feeding yeah exactly as they are walking through the water but they're i don't know i mean this isn't (laughs) empirical but from our observations like they are very smart they are they're paying attention they just knew that these things were in the water I, i don't know how um and they just walk right around the line of snares so that was frustrating. So we tried um, 
there have actually been maybe about three Saddleville Sturks captured before, just incidentally, and mm-hmm. they were just banded, and because whoever was doing it just took the opportunity right. to ban them, and they spotlighted them at night while they were um, in like a pan, a shallow pool. Right. And so we tried that, and we could... It worked until we were about 15 feet away and then they could hear our footsteps mm-hmm. and, you you know, we would try to net them when we got close. But it was just closing that gap, that last 15 right. feet. And so you have to get a native native fisherman with all those big throw nets, you know, we tried. We were we tried stuff like that. Big, long nets where we could sort of funnel them it. And we're doing this at night and it was just um yeah, we were we just didn't know what we were going to be up against, so we were kind of making it up as we went along. But definitely a learning curve, as you said. Um, some sort of net launcher is is the next move. They have these little handheld net launchers that you know will cover the distance of that last fifteen feet when we're spotlighting them at mm-hmm. night. So I was planning on doing that this summer, but COVID prevented me from traveling. So. Um, just kind of kind of play it by ear for that that research at this point hopefully you'll get some funding and get to go back and do that that yeah. sounds like needed and really fun research yeah yeah it is really exciting I bet, I bet some, some great incidental birding while you're doing it too i'm sure oh yeah i definitely even though i lived in zambia before i definitely picked up a few lifers while i was there very nice. Uh, so you've done research on stars. Tell me about some of the, it sounds like there was a, a time between your undergraduate study and your graduate study when you did field work. Am I, am I reading the gap there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of random projects. My um, resume is kind of eclectic. Let's see. Sometimes it's hard to remember. Um, I've done a lot of seasonal work because mm-hmm. that's what I'm interested in. I'm just personally not interested in, um, you know, a government job or a long-term job at this point in my life. So that's I've, the, that's the life of a, of a young birder. That's, uh, that's <laughs> it's I, it's yeah. ideal. Yeah. So I get to be the, this vagabond biologist and I feel like I learn a lot that way by working on different projects. So I've worked on Southern ground hornbills in South Africa, bighorn sheep in the Mojave Desert in California, river otters in Illinois, carnivores, all the large carnivores in Zambia, greater sage grouse in Wyoming and North Dakota. Yeah, those have those have been the the major projects I've worked on with other small things in between. What part of the sage grouse uh, work did you do? Sage grouse are a, are a controversial and indicator species now for sage, uh, you know, shrub step sage sort of habitat. It's a lot of lot of politics in a greater sage grouse right now. Yeah, I was um, working on a a different kind of project because, and actually, it was the first of its kind. We were translocating grouse from the core population in Wyoming to a peripheral population in Western North Dakota, which is the edge of their range. And it's where they've sort of receded from that area. There's still some there, but it's just not a sustainable population. So we were mm-hmm. supplementing that with birds um, translocated from Wyoming. 
and it was um it was challenging because you know they're not the brightest birds to begin with so they're already very prone to predation but there's other issues there of course habitat loss there's not as much sage especially on the periphery Mm -hmm. of their range but lots of artificial raptor perches is at least on that project it's not something we talked about but it was something that was a major issue because there's Mm. so much oil um, there's lots of oil fields in north dakota and when they're done with an oil pad they just leave you know they take out the gear but they just leave the posts and the the electrical lines Mm. up and abandoned and that creates lots of perches for swainson's hawks which were a main predator um Wow, I don't think of them as being big enough to take a greater sage for just chicks or for even adults. No, even adults. I've um, wow. We were we were translocating adults and hens with broods, um, which was mm-hmm. the first time that's ever been done. And <laughs> we go through a lot of effort, you know, driving nine hours to Wyoming, catching birds, bringing them back nine hours, having this release protocol, making sure that they're. Um, not stressed and all this and then the mm-hmm. next morning I'd walk out and going to track them and I find the mother being um, eaten by a Swainson's hawk less than 24 hours after wow. we released them wow I mean that is amazing to me I think of them as three times as big as a Swainson's hawk am I way off gosh um I mean maybe maybe the oh, hens wow. maybe the hens are more because they're smaller they're more prone to predation but yeah um Hmm. yeah they're they're similar in size yeah okay wow but yeah just lots of um artificial perches and of course tree encroachment from people planting um wind breaks around their houses or having trees that Mm -hmm. just normally wouldn't be there naturally provide nesting trees for raptors so i think there's a lot more raptors there than there would have been historically and i just don't feel like people talk about that enough even throughout the rest of their range as well because of of tree encroachment and and artificial yeah i hadn't really thought about that either okay yeah perches make sense uh i i never would have dreamt that uh yeah a fairly small beauty i mean swainson's hawk is not i mean i think of them as smaller than a red-tailed and and holy mackerel, that's that's impressive that they can take a sage cross. Very cool. Good yeah. to learn something every day. That's good. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Have, have you traveled much outside of your work to bird in the in the ABA area, or have you mostly birded where you've been? Yeah, I've I've uh, birded around the country, most states a lot. I've also spent a fair amount of time in Belize. That's kind of a place I discovered and just keep going back to because the birds and the people are just amazing there yeah yeah i took one trip to belize uh i'm hoping to go back my daughter lives in costa rica uh, and so as oh, soon cool. as i can wow. travel I'm, I'm headed that way for hopefully while it's still cold up here we'll see have you been birding down in costa rica there 
a little bit. I've only visited Jean once in Costa Rica. She's been there three or four years, but my wife was sick and, and passed away for the first year or so of her time there. And then I visited, and then I actually visited with her in Guatemala for a couple of weeks, and that was really cool. Oh, wow. uh, and yeah. then I was going to be going back for a nice long visit last winter, uh, at, you know, last March and April, and that got next. And uh, I've been waiting for feeling like I can travel for a while. You couldn't go even if you wanted to. And now you can go, but it's still a little sketchy. So I'll see when I feel like I can travel. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got, um, I went to Belize for spring break in March and it was before, you know, there was just sort of like all of a sudden COVID (laughs) got on everyone's radar here. And so it was like just a few days before that started happening here in the States and I ended mm-hmm. up getting stuck in Belize because they shut oh. down. Belize shut down the country, and um, I was stuck there for two. Stuck there in quotes. <laughs> for <That's> such a pity. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. No, um, for two months actually. You'd have been taking your classes online anyway. So what's the difference? I mean, you might as well take them from Belize, huh? Yeah, exactly. And um, I have good friends there that I was able to stay with, and yeah, it was. It was fun. Very nice. Where did you stay in Belize? My friends live in Orange Walk, which is in the north. Okay. And it's a it's the the land is the natural habitat's a lot more degraded there in the north, but there's still a lot of good birds. I spent you know, I would just kind of bird around the road that we lived on, just on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. And I would just keep right. like a little patch list and I think I got something like 150 species just in that little patch <laughs> because of migration and just the extra diversity there anyways. Very cool. That's that's a pretty good patch. Yeah. You're uh, loving visiting Belize. It's nice to have friends there so you can go visit and make that happen. That's great. Uh, where else have you visited? Like I said, I lived in South Africa and that's actually where I first started now that I think of it first started really birding, like keeping a list and paying attention mm-hmm. because before then, when I was in Maine, you know, that's when my friend and my professor were kind of getting me interested. And then right after that, right. I moved to South Africa. And so that was sort of like my, I don't know, initiation by fire, just like thrown into an area that everything is new. I don't know any of these. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, so you uh, you learned some pretty wild and exotic birds as some of your early birding experiences. Yeah, yeah, that definitely helped. Hornbills and vultures and storks and can't even think of what else is that. Did you get any? Did you get on a pelagic trip down there? There's supposed to be some great pelagic trips out of South Africa. No, I didn't. You know, I, because I was the the job situation I was in, I just didn't have that opportunity. Sure. But I. Yeah really am dying to go back to South Africa because there's still so much that I didn't see. I got to travel around with my job, so I did get to go to the coast mm-hmm. at least. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, Pelagic would be awesome out of there. So where are you at now? Uh, are you in Texas or are you elsewhere? No, I'm actually in San Diego at my mom's house at the moment. Um, oh, okay. I wrapped up my coursework for my degree I guess, while I was in Belize. So when I ended up coming back from Belize, 
I left Texas because there wasn't really a need for me to be there anymore. And um, I lost my summer job because of COVID because I couldn't get back in time. And I had a hard time. I've had a hard time finding a job. So I've just since June basically been just birding around living out of my truck until it started getting cold. And then I and then I came back here to my mom's house. Yeah, that's a pretty common story for people doing field work. Uh, I have a friend here in Tacoma who was was should have been in Borneo this summer and uh, oh. wasn't. So, wow, he's, he's doing uh, he's working in a COVID testing lab. <laughs> opportunistic work. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I um yeah. I did just get offered a job um last week. So in about a month, I'm going to be heading towards uh, Florida to the Everglades to do some work on wood storks, um, ibis, egrets, herons, all the colonial water birds down there. Sure. So it's exciting. Maybe you can get your maybe you can get your capturing techniques down with those guys. Before you go back to <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. The saddlebills don't nest colonially; otherwise, it would be easier. Oh, um, they're yeah, yeah. they're kind of these loners that make them hard to catch. But um, how do I don't even know how our wood storks nest? Are, are they colonial nesters? I, 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 yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they nest in in huge colonies sometimes. Um, most storks actually do nest in colonies. There's only a few, including the saddlebill and the related blackneck stork, that nest singly, and it makes them hard to find in their nest. That's probably why there's very little research done on them. It's just not easy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So other than uh, continued field work and hoping to uh, wrap up your master's work, what's uh, what's in your near-term future, Jonah? I'm really sort of um, with some colleagues driving some increased attention for African storks, um, mm-hmm. not just the saddlebill, but the the six endemic species there because they're they're very poorly studied very overlooked and similar to the saddlebill there's just a lot that's made up about them that is unsubstantiated and so we don't really know how they're doing because there's so little research on them and they've they've been assessed on by the IUCN as least concern and so Unfortunately, the way that conservation often goes, people will look to the IUCN and think, oh, well, they're listed as least concerned, so we don't need to pay attention to them. But it's sort of this circular issue. Well, well, they're only listed as least concerned because someone just made that up. So we need to get some actual information about them, but their least concerned status is preventing you know, them from getting attention or, or research funding. And so it's it's sort of this vicious cycle that we're trying to break mm-hmm. by just starting yep. off with trying to get some basic ideas about um, how they're doing, where they are. A lot of my research right now is on distributions and, and niche modeling. So we can just, you know, find out where are they actually, where do they occur in Africa and why do they occur there? Because we don't even know their basic environmental requirements. I'm not a biologist. Mitch modeling, that does not click for me. What is that? Oh, um, you know, like a, a, 
a species niche, the the niche oh, they have okay. in the environment. Um, I, so I, 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 I thought you said niche. Okay. Oh niche. no no niche. Okay, got it. Niche, yeah. Um, okay, so niche, yeah. Got it. basically, just looking at you know very large scale at habitat types and climate variables to see what they're positively associated with, and of course, as you would expect, a lot of the research is showing rainfall and and seasonal rainfall because obviously they're water birds so that's important sure and i i'm i'm just uh making this up obviously uh but it would seem to me that because they're big and i'm assuming relatively easy to identify uh they may be we may overestimate how common they are and how well they're doing i mean you know a, a little tiny bird there may be a million of them around and you never see them because they're secretive but a, a stork is a big bird that tends to be in open areas and so you know i'll see them all the time there must be lots of them that, that i don't know if that's a fear yeah i think i think that's something you're absolutely right that's something that's led to their current situation because people just the people that have done these assessments or or written these pieces of literature have looked around and said okay well i see them every day so you know they must be common or another issue is okay well they have a large geographic range you know they're supposedly across all of sub-saharan africa so therefore they must be common but when you know species have particular environmental requirements like storks require wetlands or a certain amount of precipitation, well, they're not going to be found everywhere within sub-Saharan Africa. And so that's sort of the issue that I'm trying to address with my research is they are not everywhere in here because they are going to where there's proper hydrological conditions for catching fish and, and things like that. And when we don't even know if they migrate or how far they move in a season um you know it's kind of hard to get some idea of of how well they're doing because the ones that are in kenya could be moving all the way to chad or something in in the dry season or or something of that sort just for listeners who are not avid uh african birders describe a saddlebill stork i'll put a i'll put make sure i get a, find a picture of it maybe you can even send me a picture of one uh and i'll put that on the blog post that i put up associated with this podcast episode but describe a saddlebill stork kind of let listeners know what they look like and and that sort of thing they are huge um so over five feet tall so when you're trying to catch them their bill is right at face stabbing level <laughs> um very big, but very slender and graceful. They have black and white plumage, but the most striking part about them is their their face and their bill. So they are called a saddable stork because they have a bright yellow um, patch of skin right at the on the top side of their bill. And then the rest of their bill is sections of red and black alternating. And so it's this really like striking contrast of colors right on their face, um, along with their black head just makes them very elegant and very hard to miss. Sounds strangely beautiful. Yeah. If that's a fair description. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is why it's also really surprising that no one's ever paid any attention to these because, you know, they're very charismatic and that's what people sort of gravitate towards is the charismatic species. 
Sounds like they got the attention of Jonah Gula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They got that going for them. That's good. Uh, is there any, uh, con- is there a lot of conservation work going on in Africa for wetlands or not? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, conservation in Africa takes a very traditional approach where we just focus on protected areas. So like national parks and reserves, but there's mm-hmm. sort of this new movement among some, not necessarily everyone in Africa or elsewhere in the world that, you know, we need to take a more holistic approach to looking at landscapes because if we're just focused on protected areas, well, these are just these kind of patches on the landscape. And then you get, you know, especially if we're talking about mammals like elephants or something, if you're only focusing on the national parks, then you're getting these remnant patches that aren't connected on the landscape. Of course, for birds, it's easier because they can fly between them. But for wetlands, there's actually as diverse as um, the wildlife and especially the birds in Africa are, there's not Mm -hmm. a lot of, besides just, you know, wanting to protect areas, set them aside as protected areas, there's not a lot of other work going on in Africa. And so that's where my Saddleville field research, I was trying to tie it into, you know, looking at, because I was, my work is in a national park, okay, well, are these storks using unprotected areas? Are they moving between protected areas? Right. Because protected areas, I mean, not all of that habit, unprotected areas, rather, not all of that habitat is destroyed or degraded. Um, sure. And there's a lot of, you know, one of my colleagues, Gopi Sundar, works in India um, on storks and, and other water birds. And he and his colleagues mm-hmm. are producing a lot of incredible research that, you know, is of course context specific to India, but it kind of goes against our traditional ideas of um, agriculture is bad, national parks are good, because storks over there, like like the woolly neck stork, they're more common mm-hmm. outside of protected areas in, in some countries, um, even countries you wouldn't expect, like like Myanmar, um, some colleagues just published a paper. There's more woolly necks outside of the protected areas than in them. And mm-hmm. in Africa, no one is, not many people are paying attention to the unprotected areas. So we don't really know if this might be the case in some areas as well. Yeah, I've had two guests on recently who had, I mean, we're talking about African storks, but sort of related sorts of things. One of them uh, was uh, Paul Bannock, who's the owl and the woodpecker guy. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen I've him. I've but anyway, he, he works with uh, a, a conservation group uh, that is very focused on connecting uh, uh, wildlife areas, wildlife corridors, and allowing the movement of animals and birds from one place to another, which is super important. You know, if you just got like these segmented parcels of land, it isn't nearly as helpful as if you've got... Uh, allowing animals and birds can fly, but they still, you know, it's good to have lots of different areas. And the other was Florence Reed. Florence works with uh, 
agroforestry, uh, sustainable agroforestry uh, type model. And uh, they are finding that many of our neotropic migrants, uh, you know, some of them certainly need the uh, primary forests and that sort of thing. But many, many of them, you know, you always think of uh, shade grown coffee plantations. Well, it's not just coffee plantations, it's family farms uh, and family farms done right where they have mm. multi-tiered uh, structure and are sustainable places can attract and harbor tremendous amounts of wildlife, whereas just a you know mono monocrop uh, you know pa- palm oil plantation or you know pineapple plantation, you know is, there's not much habitat there for anything. So uh, th- those those sorts of things are lots of different types of work going on for knowing that it's not just. Uh, national wildlife reserves and national parks that uh, that animals live in. Yeah, yeah, that those are those are perfect examples because when you know we th- we think of in um, undeveloped countries, oh, people are poaching or people are destroying the habitat, and as Westerners, we get super mad at them when we do not understand the context at all. You know, in Traditional land uses, like you're talking about, family farms done right, where it's not a monoculture, it's kind of a mix of everything, plus, you know, everything as far as produce and natural vegetation. Um, right. Diversity is often higher in those places. And so we think we kind of generalize agriculture is bad, but not all agriculture is, is equal. And yeah, I think we just yeah. for Africa we need to start thinking about that because you know the same thing that's going on with the woolly next door in South Asia might be going on in Africa but no one's paid attention to the areas outside protected areas to to think about that. Sounds like you could develop this into a life's work. All you need is the right kind of uh continued education and uh support. So sounds like you've got work laid out for you. Yeah, yeah, that would that's my hope. Um, I'm sort of uh, stork obsessed, so I'd like to stick with it. <laughs> Good for you. I hope that you can, Jonathan. That's terrific. Uh, are there particular conservation causes that people should know about that are working on things that are not necessarily specific to storks, but I mean, you know, I, I look at the American Bird Conservatory and and uh, different uh, conservation efforts in our country that I know about, but I don't know what's going on in Africa. Are there specific, uh, you know, continental or international uh, conservation things that people should know about as potential places to donate to? Or you know, there's all of the the big organizations that you would normally think of. But we don't, there's not organizations uh, there that are comparable to what we have here in the States where they are doing research uh, that's applicable, doing on the ground management. You know, to, just to be frank, um, Africa is, is sort of behind with that. There's lots of organizations over there, but they're often doing their own thing. Um, they're often, you know, coming in with this Western perspective and trying to implement things that aren't context appropriate. Yeah, so um, it's it's a little bit more of a challenging situation there that um, makes you recognize how fortunate we are here in the United States to have a lot of 
good organizations that are actually doing what they're what they they say they're doing and um you know making a difference and using research so that it actually has management implications um it's kind of hard in africa when you know even i think about it with myself okay i'm coming over here i don't live there at the moment i'm coming over here and doing this research and then leaving that kind of is is kind of inappropriate because um you're not there in the context of the conservation issues. Mm-hmm. It's suboptimal, but you know, you do what you can do. And I, I appreciate the work that you do. And it sounds like you're having fun doing it and learning a lot and furthering your education all at the same time. So that's, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's exciting to be um, working on stuff that's new. Um, not, it's not like cutting edge, but, you know, actually learning things that we haven't known before. That That's what makes it exciting. That's terrific. Jonah, thanks for being on with me today. I'm going to wrap up with a couple of little quick tidbits. What's the best bird you've seen in the San Diego area lately? Just the other day, I went out and saw um, a red-footed booby, which has been hanging out um, in the bay. Yeah, I got a scope on it. So Pretty jealous. distant, but... Yeah, that was a lifer. Yeah, very cool. So uh, if it's okay, tell uh, listeners how they can reach out to you. How would they get a hold of you? I, I think you said you have an Instagram account. Yeah, um, you can follow me on Instagram. I think my username is just Jonah Gula, um, my name. Um, or if you, for whatever reason, wanted to email me directly, my email is jonah.gula at yahoo.com. If you want to ask questions about storks or or whatever, talk about birds. Okay, so that's J-O-N-A-H period or dot G-U-L-A at, I think you said yahoo.com. Okay, terrific. Jonah, thanks so much for being on with me today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, If you see uh, Morgan or Kendall before I do say hello, (laughs) uh, I I had a call with them the other day and and that was fun. Uh, Morgan has a little baby now. She's my first dog. Uh, grandniece. So she's so cute. A new new generation coming along. Thanks for listening and uh, you take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ed. So what's with me in the introduction talking about Christmas? I guess it is a a week before Christmas right now. So Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bird Banner podcast. And if you have concerns, questions, comments, please leave uh, a review in the podcast notes. Check out the Bird Banner blog uh, at birdbanner.com. Out of the blog section, there will be more information about Jonah and some of the things we talked about during this episode. Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter where you can find Bird Banner and Use the contact button on the website. Any of those ways, let me know if you have people you'd like to hear as guests, you have comments, feedback. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Merry Christmas and good birding, good day. (laughs) 